Well, if you have your Bible apps or your Bibles, go with me to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs, the 7th chapter. I went to a tiny little college in the middle of nowhere in Ohio uh, named Cedarville University in a town called Cedarville, and it's as boring as it sounds. You literally drive 15 minutes through cornfields to find a college campus, one grocery store that doubles as a gas station, and two restaurants, one of which happens to be a subway because subways are literally every five miles in the United States. And um, so when, when you were at Cedarville, you, you didn't have many dining options, and, and that's all right because you're in college and you're broke anyways. And yet the allure of going to the same cafeteria that you went to day after day after day that your parents paid very much money for you to go to and the underwhelming results on a daily basis. It just made you long for something more. And because the town was so small and because there were 15 minutes of cornfields just encompassing the campus on every direction, the scent just carried of the other restaurant in town and it was a pizza place. And in the winter especially, as the sun would go down at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and you would have no sunlight and just the promise of another disappointing meal in the cafeteria was staring you in the face. As you'd walk out your dorm room, you'd begin to smell it. And it smelled so good. It smelled delicious. And it was dorm cafeteria or dorm pizza. So naturally, the results as frequently as you could afford it were dorm pizza. The only problem was, as great as the pizza smelled, and as great as the pizza tasted in this tiny little town, the end results were like poison to the stomach. About an hour after you'd indulged just this massive amount of pizza because you're in college and that's what you do, you felt every bite of the pizza and every bite of the cheese sticks, and it tasted so good, and yet the end result was absolute misery as you would just sit in the fetal position on your bunk, and you would cry out for your roommate to just grab you the Tums, but your roommate was also in the fetal position, and so whoever was on the bottom bunk had the misfortune of being the one who had to get up to get the Tums and then to pass them to the person ahead of them on the bunk above them as you just laid in utter misery and then two days later you were ready to do it again because it just smelled so good and it tasted so good and luckily you couldn't afford it two days later or else if you could you'd be in the exact same position you were because it was appealing at first the end result not so much this morning as we look at Proverbs chapter 7, what we're going to see is we're going to see an instance of adultery unplaying before our eyes. We're going to see a scene which unfolds, and the specific scene deals with adultery, but it's a practical picture of all sin. It's a practical picture of how all sin approaches us, and it looks great, and it's tempting. And it feels good at first. But the end result is destruction. The end result is misery. Proverbs chapter 7 says this, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. 
Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. So here we have the warning. And he's saying, son, listen. Listen to wisdom. And the reason he has to give the warning in the first place is because sin is appealing. If sin weren't appealing, he wouldn't have to give the warning. It would be a no-brainer. It would just be stay away. If we saw the results of sin unfold instead of the pleasure of sin unfold, we would refrain. We wouldn't need the constant warning. But sin's deceptive. It's appealing. It looks good. It presents itself in a favorable fashion. And so here is a father imploring his son to listen to him. Listen. Stay away. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Why? To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. She's perceptive in how she presents herself. She's, she packages herself well. And so she says the things that he wants to hear. She makes him feel good about himself. As he, as he has just his broken dreams, as he, as he has the reality of his life and has, how it hasn't unfolded and the way that he once dreamed it would, she comes along. And with her words... She makes him feel young again. She makes him feel whole again. She makes him feel like this is the best avenue. The words of the adulteress, they come, and when they arrive, they're smooth and they're appealing, and it sounds great. For at the window of my house... I have looked out through my lattice. And I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night, in darkness. So the author of this, Proverbs, of this proverb is just sitting by his window, and he's watching this scene unfold, and he sees the young guy, and he sees the cougar, and he's like, yeah, he's going right for the cougar. He's noticing the path that he's taking, and it's leading right to her. And he's just watching as the young guy is on the path. He's just sitting back and saying, that's not going to end well. We've all been there. We've all been there. When your friend at the high school lunch table is like, yeah, I'm going to go ask her out. And you're thinking, dude, she is way out of your league. And you're like, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's the best. He's like, no, I got this. I got this. And you're just like, that's not going to end well. 
And it doesn't. It never ends well. I mean, we've all been there. It's the reaction my wife has when I go to the small toolbox that I have in our house and I pick up a hammer or a screw, anything. And she's like, no, no. And I was going to say screwdriver, all right? I wasn't going to say hammer and screw. I know enough to know that a, you use a screwdriver with a screw and you use a nail with a hammer. I could see some of you writing that one down like that idiot doesn't even know that you don't use a hammer with a screw. All right, I just stopped in the middle. I was just going to let it go, but then I saw some of your wheels turning and I'm like, oh no, I'm going to hear about this all the time in the comments. Somebody's going to tweet me later today. Save your tweet. I know you use a screwdriver with a screw and you use a nail with a hammer, all right? I know that much. But the response of my wife, anytime I go to that, she's like, that's yeah, not going to end well. It's like anytime the Browns draft a quarterback, you just know. <laughs> you just know. Yeah, that one's not going to go well. And that's exactly what the author of this proverb is thinking. As he looks out his window, he sees the young idiot. And the older, experienced woman who's just preying on him. And he is pursuing a path, oh, that is so dangerously close. I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night, in darkness. This isn't going to end well. First, he's on the wrong path. He's on the wrong path. The path he is on is leading him directly to sin. A couple years ago, Andy Stanley wrote a great book called The Principle of the Path, and his premise of the book was this. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. The choices you make and the direction you choose to live your life is what impacts your outcome. It doesn't matter your intentions. I just, th there are a couple things I, I want to share with you from this book because it's, these are so great. And this is exactly what's going on here in Proverbs chapter 7. Stanley writes, direction, not intention, determine your destination. Direction, not intention, determine your destination. The direction you are currently traveling relationally, financially, spiritually, and the list goes on and on, will determine where you end up in each of those respective areas. He goes on to write later, I've talked to many individuals who want to discuss their problems, but they don't really have problems. They have chosen to live in the wrong direction. They don't need a solution. They need a new direction. And lastly, I want to share this. We don't drift in good directions. We discipline and prioritize ourselves there. We don't drift in good directions. We discipline and prior prioritize ourselves there. We drift on the dangerous path. We drift like this young, stupid guy who's on the path that leads right by the cougar's house. We drift like him. The time is nighttime. Nothing positive is going to come about this. Some of us are in danger right now. And the reason we're in danger is not because of choices that we have actively made, but they are choices that are actively coming because of the position that we have put ourselves in. We haven't done anything wrong yet, 
But the course on which we are choosing to live our lives leaves no alternative for us but to make wrong choices unless we stop and turn around. That's our option. That's our option. My wife and I went to the beach this summer, and on the way back, there had been an accident in the tunnel in Virginia, which is a very big problem when the tunnel in Virginia is closed on Interstate 77. Now, we were, we were on 77, and we were heading north, and we knew the tunnel was closed. And we had it on our iPhones. We had those little traffic routes. And they're like redder than they've ever been before. I mean, it's just the whole screen is nothing but red when you zoomed in. And it didn't take, it didn't take a genius to figure out, well, that traffic's not going to part for us, okay? The, the tunnel is closed. They finally got it down to one lane. There was a huge problem. And it didn't matter that we were in North Carolina at the time. And we were just crossing over into Virginia and it didn't matter that we wanted to make it home that night. All that mattered was there was a roadblock on the path we were currently traveling. So we had two options. One, we could continue the path and we would sit in traffic and invariably get angry at one another and yell at each other and just get more mad at each other and then repent and forgive one another and then get mad at each other. And yeah, I mean, when you're sitting in traffic, it brings out the best in, I don't know about you, but it brings out the best in me, definitely. And, and so I'm just like, that's not an option. And so the option that we chose for, even though we did not yet get to the traffic jam that said at a minimum you were going to be sitting for four hours, was I found every back road in Virginia, in West Virginia, to the point that I gave my young son motion sickness and he puked in the car, but the car kept traveling and guess what? We made it home that night. Otherwise, we would have stat, sat on the interstate because the path we were on was leading to destruction, and it didn't matter what our intentions were. That was the reality. We had to find a new path. We understand this in driving and directionally, but it's true in life as well. And here, the voice of wisdom looks out his window, and he just sees the scene unfolding, and he knows it's just not going to end well. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, now at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. And today, I've paid my vows. Now we're like, huh? I mean, we're tracking. She's in lingerie. She's dressed like a prostitute, okay. She kisses him, yep. 
She grabs a hold of him. Yeah, tracking, tracking, tracking. Understand how this is going to seduce him. Understand how this isn't going to go well with it. With, I, I understand all of this. And then she's like, begins to whisper sweet nothings to him. And she says, I had to offer sacrifices. And today I've paid my vows. And I'm like, huh? That's where you lost me. I was tracking right till then. So you have to understand the whole idea of peace offerings from Leviticus 7. And basically, the, the rule of the peace offering was this, that the food that was offered on the altar had to be consumed that day. And so we see two things here. Number one, she's appealing to him in his, his need for nourishment. She's saying, I will feed you, take care of you. She, she looks good. She makes the move. She, she kisses him. She grabs hold of him. She's like, I'll feed you. Now all the guys are tracking. They're like, oh, okay. But this, this statement lets us know something else about her as well. And that she's a very religious person. She's incredibly religious. She had just gone and made an offering. She's religious. She's going to the temple. All the outward signs are there. And even in her action earlier that day, she goes to the temple. She offers the offering. She compartmentalizes herself. See, part of her goes and, and offers the offering, and part of her, being a married woman, attempts to seduce another man. This is why God doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. Scripture tells us to obey is, is better to than to sacrifice. God wants you. He doesn't want a portion of you. He doesn't want part of you. Because what that looks like is it looks like we come here, we raise our hands when we worship, we sing songs to God, we track along when we study scripture, we throw something in the offering plate, and then we walk out these doors and we live our lives like there's no difference. That is not the relationship that God desires. God wants you, the whole being, the whole person. He wants all of you. And it's easy to play the game. It's easy for us to come in and to give a portion of our lives to God. It's easy for us to raise our hands and worship, but later tonight to use those hands for things that do not honor God. It's easy for us to sing songs and later today, out of the very same mouth, utter things that do not please God. God wants all of you. And she doesn't give her all. And I wonder, is that true of us?
So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home. Oh, and this is where it looks so good. This is where sin looks so good. Notice the appeal. She looks good. She kisses him. She grabs him. She offers to feed him. Now she begins to tell him what she has to offer. I've come out to meet you. I've sought you out, and I've prepared. She offers the luxuriousness of Egyptian linens, which, which weren't cheap and were incredibly, incredibly just comfortable. She's perfumed her bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Let us take our fill of love till morning. We can, we can sleep together all night. Let us delight ourselves with love. She offers to have a lot of sex. For my husband is not at home. Nobody will find out. My husband is gone. He's on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. That full moon. He will come home. And this is the appeal of sin. And specifically, this is the appeal of adultery. And I understand why people commit adultery. Not condoning it, not saying it's right, but I understand when you're married, it's tough. I mean, Scripture promised us that. The Apostle Paul in, in Corinthians told us, if, if you get married, expect to have a lot of troubles. You will. It's difficult. It's difficult. Because not only do you have to live with yourself, and there are certain days I don't even like myself, but now you have to live with somebody else and all of their faults and all of their imperfections and them pointing out to you all of your faults and all of your imperfections. And it can be one of the most beautiful things that God's ever designed, and yet it can be one of the most difficult things because of who we are. And the appeal of adultery is you don't have to worry about that. There's no stress of marriage. There aren't kids. You don't worry about bills to be paid. All you worry about is the moment. All you worry about is the person that approaches you, that offers to make you feel good, that tells you what you want to hear that your spouse hasn't told you. This is the appeal of adultery. This is the appeal 
of sin. This is it. And it presents itself like a wonderful thing. It presents itself like it will make you whole. It will make you feel great. It will will make you the man or the woman that you've longed to be. But its promises can never be fulfilled. Listen, I understand the appeal of adultery, but what I want you to understand is the destruction of adultery. I understand the appeal of sin, but what I want you to understand is the destruction of sin. Because the reality that we're about to encounter is much different than the appeal that has just taken place. This is the reality. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. You see, the problem with the appeal of adultery, the problem with the appeal of sin is this. The second you give in, the appeal is lost because it offers a fantasy that is an impossible reality. That's the problem with sin. It offers a fantasy that is an impossible reality. As soon as you cheat, the second you cheat, the fantasy is gone. The second you have that affair, you just brought into that relationship the dynamics that are already existing in your marriage relationship. And now not only have you screwed up that relationship, but you've screwed up your marriage as well. This is the problem of sin. It looks good. It's appealing. But it's fantasy. And the reality is it leads to death and destruction. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. And oh, what was once so appealing She looked good. She told you what you wanted to hear. She told you that she'd take care of you. She kissed you. She grabbed you close. She prepared. She offers only the finest. It's so appealing. 
She promises lots of sex and that nobody will ever find out. And the end result is death and destruction. Not just with adultery, but with all sin. So how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, we need to do a couple things. First, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Let me say that again. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Some of you this morning think there's absolutely no way in my life I would ever have an affair. And so you have no safeguards in place. And you don't even realize it, but people looking at your life say, this isn't going to end well. And they're watching you as you are on a path that leads right by the cougar's house. Take heed. When you think you stand, you can very easily fall. You are capable of what you don't even think you're capable of. So the first step to that is recognizing it. Recognize it. We don't drift in good directions. We discipline and prioritize ourselves there. We don't drift in good directions. We discipline and prioritize ourselves there. As Andy Stanley wrote that, I just started thinking about what are, what are the ways? So, so we realize that we're capable of it. What, what else do we need to do? Discipline and prioritize ourselves discipline and prioritize ourselves. Step back from where you are right now and just inventory. Where am I headed? If I pursue this relationship with this person, if I, if I continue to do this, if I continue to practice this discipline or don't practice that discipline, where am I headed? Do that sexually. Do that in terms of your career. If, if our business is tracking this way and we, don't, and we don't make any changes, where are we headed? It doesn't matter what your intentions are. All that matters is the direction you're heading. In terms of your friends, ask yourself the same question. In terms of as you look at your children's lives, Ask the question, if, if I don't intervene and I see this, where is this going to end up? And what do I need to do to respond so that it doesn't end up this way, but it could end up this way? One of the things I would encourage you to do is something that, that Jim Collins encourages, and that is a lot of people, especially around New Year's time, they, they create a to-do list. They create a to-do list. 
And, and that's important. But what's equally important is to create a stop doing list. And as you inventory, and as you see what's going on in your life, create both what you need to do and what you stop, what you need to stop doing. As you're on the path. Maybe you're like, Brian, I messed up. I messed up. I've fallen and I fell for the trap of sin. On the Friday, I was headed to New York City a couple weeks ago with the team that we went with to New York. I received a phone call from my wife on the way to the airport that brought me so much joy I can't even convey. For two weeks, utter havoc and terror have been wreaked upon us by a groundhog in our backyard. For two weeks, this stupid rodent taunted me as it would stand on its hind legs and wave as I looked out the window. And I would decree I'm going to kill you. And he would just keep waving at me, taunting me, come get me, bro. And so I set out a trap. And for over a week, I would come out to a closed trap and no groundhog in sight. And finally, I moved the trap. And as I'm on a bus headed to, New York, headed to the Cleveland airport to fly to New York City, my phone rings, and it's my wife saying, we've got him. Now what do I do? To which I replied, kill it. I should have known this was going to be a problem. My neighbor Dave told me when I put out the trap it was going to be a problem. See, weeks before, I'd wanted to cut down a branch from a tree, and my wife had said, oh, no, there's a nest. Don't cut down the branch. And so, because she's a little emotional right now, we're expecting our second child soon, and she felt very strongly about that little robin's nest. The branch stayed until the bird hatched. And Dave, having overheard this conversation, pulled me aside and said, there's no way she's letting you kill that groundhog. There's no way. And I said, Dave, I still believe. I still believe. And as I told her on the phone, well, kill it. She said, how am I supposed to do that? I thought through, and um, all we have is a shotgun. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be a little overkill for the trap. <laughs> Probably don't want to do that. So my next suggestion was to drown it. To which she replied, you can't drown it. And I said, give it a drink, you know, let it consume a little too much water. <laughs> she said, I can't do that. So I said, you need to figure out how to kill this thing because I want it dead. <laughs> 20 minutes later, my phone, call, my phone rang again and it was my wife and she said, I've got a solution. I said, what's that? She said, my father's going to handle it. I said, okay, great. What are you doing? I'm feeding it carrots. <laughs> You're what? My wife was putting carrots in the trap for the trapped groundhog to eat. Carrots! I'm trying to kill something. She's making sure it gets its vegetable intake for the day. Her father comes over and says, oh, I can't shoot it. 
animal lovers, you, all you PETA subscribers. He loads the thing into the trunk of the car he just got. It pees all over the trunk. He still doesn't kill the thing. What does he do? He drives it to Jackson Township and releases it in Jackson Township. I get back from New York City, and what do I see but a groundhog in my backyard, standing on his back two feet, waving at me, because somebody gave the stupid groundhog a reprieve. Oh, it was trapped, and it was ready to be killed. But somebody intervened. Maybe you've been guilty of adultery. Maybe it's something else. And you've been in that trap. But somebody intervened. God loved us so much, He sent His Son Jesus. Forgives us all our sin. There's work that needs to be done and there's restoration that needs to happen, but I want you to know there's hope. There's hope. Flee. Inventory the path you're on and stop and turn around. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace. Thanks for your warning. When things aren't going to end well, God, I, I pray. that you would help us look at our lives, take a step back, and see the ways we're headed for destruction. God, I pray that we would see beyond the appeal of sin. God, I pray that if it's too late and we've already been entrapped, that we would take your grace. got us out of the trap. God, I pray that we would receive that. And we would go and sin no more. Father, restore us, redeem us, and help us before we sin. Oh, that we may follow you, bring you honor and glory. God, be honored with our lives. In your son, Jesus' name we pray.